they just had that uh, in-game concert, didn't they? With um, I haven't heard of it. Uh, I'm so old and I'm trying to remember the name. Oh, of I was, I was listening as if DJ. it was that as the song. Yeah, yeah, that's the song. You remember <laughs> that song? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a DJ for young people. A young pe- person's interest. David Guetta. No, younger than that. That's oh. that's an old reference, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> I don't know. I was... He's got one, one name. He's got like mushroom or something. Sounds pretty lit. <laughs> Either way. <laughs> was apparently quite lit <laughs> somewhat lit uh fortnite marshmallow i've never heard of him or her who is it don't know marshmallow there uh, had a um, it's quite bleak doesn't it <laughs> i'm trying to I'm, I'm trying to think where I, to make that make sense when we mentioned that and it's like fortnite where that they had the concert within the game and I think I think it's Marshmallow like Marshmallow that's the guy After quite a long break we are back with Making Games is Fun and this episode is with Daisy Fernandez. Now, Daisy's currently working at State of Play, um, but she's a recent graduate from the National Film and Television School, where she did a master's in games. And we're gonna have a chat about that and the ins and outs of that. Daisy's really funny, she's really interesting, she's really intelligent, and we had a good old hour or so chatting away. And I'm sorry it's been so long. Um, I've got a few people lined up this time and I'm going to try and up the output so you're not waiting quite so long in between episodes because I know that's a bit dull. But thanks for sticking with us and enjoy this new episode of Making Games is Fun. I did a master's over two years and the, the big climax of the master's is taking your game to EGX in September of the second year. Oh, and that's part of the yeah. course. So whether you like it or not, you have to show what you've made oh, to the public. Man. And so once that was over, it was, you, it was, it was time to look for a job. Right. Yeah. So what, what was, um, so what uni was it? Sorry. I went to the National Film and Television School, which is a film school just outside of London. Right. Which does a games design and development course. Okay, so is that a new course? It's, I think it's been going on for about six or seven years now. Right. But it, it you can collaborate with other students who are working on film and TV. Right, okay. So you can work with composers, sound designers, screenwriters. That's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, it's very cool. Did you find that games had um, an equal presence to, to film there and television in terms of how seriously it was taken or... By the students, yes. So one trend that was pointed out to me was that um, maybe in the previous years, sound designers hadn't really been so switched on about games design as a possible career path. Mm. But by the time I was at that film school, a lot of the sound designers were actually considering it as a uh, as a valid career path. And you know, right, yeah. In one way, we you know we want games to be grouped with film and TV because mm. it's all entertainment and and they should be kind of a similar standing. But at the same time. 
that still feels I guess six years is quite a long time but it still feels like quite a quite a new course comparatively and yeah and as I say attitudes towards it might be a bit like oh yeah and also there's a games bit um but you said but yeah you're saying that that minds were sort of being changed a bit I think it to be honest, when it comes, it comes to down to who you collaborate with, and I was really fortunate mm. that I was working with people who who did give a shit about what we were doing. Yeah. So, yeah, it's games does have a stigma it needs to get rid of. Yeah. Still. Yeah. And I think I was quite conscious about the people I was collaborating with for that reason. Yeah. Um, so, going back to the the masters, mm. you had to make a game. Was it was it a two year course? Two year course. So you were making the game from the start of the course or was it still kind of like a learning period? The best thing about the course is that you could start with absolutely no tech experience whatsoever and they actually encouraged it and that's what I did. Mm-hmm. So the first year was essentially a boot camp of learning how to code, do 3D art, animate, design, mm. produce wow. and it was intense. My God. But amazing. <laughs> and then, it, but the way they taught you each of these things was through a, a module that where you'd make a, a game for each platform yeah. and then you'd let you pick up the skills basically through failing massively each yeah. time yeah, and sure. then in the second year you get to work on your passion project and you spend the entire or maybe about six months mm. up until EGX where you show it to the public that sounds mad and how so how, how did that um, turn out when you actually go to show it what, what do they do is it like a, a booth how did they yeah, how did they, they work rented out? out a booth and then we on the first day there was about two hours when no one came over to our stands <laughs> everyone just like ran over to go and play Spider-Man or whatever yeah, we just course, stood there yeah. like throwing flyers at yeah, this yeah. crowd of people who just Try sprinted this. past yeah. um, and but then gradually there was like this this flow of people would start coming and then mm. they'd all try out the game and it was it's amazing because you, you can't anticipate who's going to play it Yeah, and you can't please everyone so no. you're just at the mercy of whoever comes over yeah. <laughs> and it was it was really it was cool it really challenged my perception of what kind of I don't know, maybe I thought EGX would be quite hard, like hardcore gamers who might not like my mm. pretentious narrative game. But people were really, really great. And yeah, it was really, really interesting experience. How many of there were you then together in the stand? Like how many games on show? Ten. Ten? Yeah. And you get like what? A, a, was it, um, what was your setup? Like a, a PC or like a laptop? Yeah, PC. So it was, we could decide what platform we wanted to make the game for. Right. Majority of us made a game for PC. Um, okay. And majority of us had no game development experience before we started the course. Sorry, this sounds like one big promotional no, no. <laughs> NFTS thing. No, no, no. But like, um, I'm interested in it because, like, this is this is one thing that was um, that I like. I'm interested in the difference between because back when I was at school at mm. university, like there was no, there was almost nothing in that sort of uh, scope of things. So I did computer science but only because I had an interest in games not necessarily like <laughs> I wanted to attempt coding and I realized I was horrible at it <laughs> to the point where I was just like I, I hate this mm. um I like design I like thinking about the design of games I like looking at all that stuff but when it comes to actually like coding it I was just I was just bad just bad yeah. just not my skill whatever I mean if I'd have probably put a bit more effort into it then who knows like you know but um it was it was coding was like a module within um, there's a maths like computing maths which was just broke my head <laughs> uh, just and you know the second year I went right I'm doing all the 
easy bit easy bits now towards to, to see this see this course out you know but um there was no there was absolutely nothing in terms of game design uh game you know game development as a career and all the different jobs you can get in that area uh there's certainly no idea of like what it's like to take a game to see a game through you know and produce mm. a game and put it out there there's nothing there's nothing like that at all um I think there was the odd game design course like cropping up in specific universities, but but it was not. From what I understood, they were very sort of basic because they didn't really know what they needed to put in those courses, and it was a bit like no one would recognise it afterwards anyway. So it was almost just like a it, it, you know it was really in its infancy. So it is interesting to see what what's changed, or interesting to hear what's changed with that, and that's that's really cool. The idea that like gives you an experience of like putting a game out at, 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 at a big show like that, you know, that's a really neat idea. So yeah, it's absolutely incredible, and I think to to have a course that would take you on with no tech experience was an incredibly rare, yeah. possibly ill-advised <laughs> idea for a course. But because you know, it's twelve of us, or t- sorry, ten of us, all just sitting there like not really knowing what we were doing learning how to program with our incredibly patient tutor um and similar to you i did not take to coding and i'm not being self-effacing either like it's just i i just wasn't any good at it but Mm. i really did enjoy it and i think this is what's so amazing about games development for me is that i don't i found it incredibly difficult but i've always enjoyed it and i think quite often with math say at school i was no good at it and as a result, had no interest in it. Mm. So to do something which I didn't feel like I had the technical mm. existing skills at, but to still be excited by it was, yeah, yeah I just felt like I was onto something. Do you feel like cause you could, it was because you could see the application? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. to have this kind of creative incentive, you yeah. know, I, so I'd be struggling with some, you know, the, the, the concept of coding and yeah. then but I would really want some dramatic event to play out in my game mm. so I would just persist in a way that I would absolutely not have done if I was just learning it yeah for something less creative mm. and you know when you're when you really want some dramatic payoff to happen or for like a light to turn on if a character walks into a room and or some music to start playing yeah you just will keep on but well, I found that I would just keep persevering because yeah I wanted to see what that outcome would be but also I'm I'm pretty dyslexic numerically yeah. and I had always assumed that coding was just a boat that I had missed and there were you know it seems now that in education there's more of a incentive to teach children how to program that I didn't really feel was the case when I was at school but then again it was pointed out to me that quite often we were in IT lessons were learning how to code but sort of sneakily they were making us play that game I can't remember what it's called it was like a, a tortoise Oh, uh, logic. Yeah. Yeah. We've been taught that, but I had no interest. And, <laughs> and then I also used to play this game called Colabot, which is a, a game made by the Polish government to teach children how to program. Oh, right. And Colabot. Colobot. Oh, Colobot, uh, Something not like that. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. sponsored by... Yeah, yeah. Sponsored by Colobot. And yeah, you just... It was like flying a spaceship around and it was like pretty nasty 3D graphics, but I used to love it. Right. But the any programming that I was doing just obviously did not stick in my head and I wasn't even aware I was doing it yeah so it truly felt like I was learning to program fresh yes two years yeah. ago yeah that's crazy two years yeah. yeah just from out of out of nothing yeah so what was your so what did you do before that I did an English degree right so you went from English to go into yeah and where did you see the masters and what made you go for it and well 
I was I knew that I wanted to do my my big plan was to do screenwriting, and right. I wanted to work uh, write scripts. You know, uh, not coding scripts, but yeah, like the dialogue scripts yeah. f and stories for video games alongside film and TV. And so I thought it was a good idea to do an English degree first, just to get a f solid foundation of n you know knowledge about literature and yep. also an English literature degree ostensibly is also politics and sociology and things like that. Mm -hmm. And because you have to know the context of the books you're reading. Um, and so I was looking at a few master's courses and found the screenwriting course at the NFTS, mm. the National Film and Television School, mm. um, and saw that the, the um, applications were closed. But I had a little browse around the, red, the rest of the website and came across the games design one. And it was the first time I'd ever considered getting involved with games in a technical capacity. Right. I'd always assumed I'd come in through the, the writing side of it. And then reading about, we'll teach you everything fresh. Um, you know, it doesn't matter if you don't come from a games background, like apply. Oh. And so I did. And it was kind of strange telling my parents that I was going to apply to this course because it felt for them completely out of the blue. Right. Um, what did they think of it in general? They were surprised. <laughs> and okay. it, was, it was a bit of a contentious issue, really. I think, um, there's, as I was saying, there is, there is some negative connotations attached with games. And yeah. But it, was, it felt kind of strange to me because I, I remember playing a lot of games when I was younger, during yeah. my childhood. Okay. But it hadn't really been noticed by my parents. Okay. They they only really realised that my younger brother, or they only saw my younger brother playing games. Right. So they're like, "You don't play games." And <laughs> it's like it, it felt a bit rogue. Um, Interesting. And but then when they saw how passionate I was about it, immediately. Yeah. They completely, completely converts. And since then, I think they've now that they've been thinking about games and hearing more about it from me, they've they hear about it on the radio and they see it coming into the mainstream recognition a bit more. Right. You know, be that through BAFTA Games or the VNA having a games exhibition. It's, it's very now, you mm. know. And I think they're kind of proud that I'm doing something which is, inverted commas, strange. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, at the start, it was, it, was a, it was kind of, it seemed very random to them and we had a, a few discussions sure. about it. Sure. Hopefully a civil discussion. Yeah, yeah, totally civil. I don't want to paint yeah. it like they were discouraging. Yeah. I think they were just astonished. <laughs> sure, okay. And similarly with my friends as well, they were all supportive, but they all just thought it was very out of the blue. Okay. But um, you played games growing up? Yeah. Played PlayStation 2 was definitely my era. Right, okay. Yeah. But everyone was, but even your friends were like... But then, yeah, they just, it was something they grew out of. Right. I didn't, no, now, obviously, since I've done my master's and since I've been more involved in the game world, I've made friends who play games as well as make games yes. but a big body of my friendship group don't and I think it, I've challenged their assumptions a bit about what a game developer is and that they even exist at all yeah yeah that's the other thing isn't it it's it's, yeah. it's that um not a presumption but I, I don't because I don't think people it's a strange one because I don't think people literally think oh these games just pop up by I don't know a machine makes it and, yeah. and there it is but people don't really think about the idea of someone sitting there and making a game. Yeah. And, the, you know, there are a few films and TV shows that show um, game developers, mm. but it's never in a very diverse or encouraging light. Yeah. I mean, I, I, from what I've seen, at least. But, you know, a couple of ideas spring to mind, like uh, that stoner comedy, Grandma's Boy, <laughs> was pretty much the only 
I don't idea know I had it of game development um, is about a QA tester. Oh, it's just like there's Grand a lot of like boy. masturbating jokes and like smoking God. bongs and like it's just I can't I can't really remember the film that well yeah. but I remember watching when I was a child and yeah that was my one big reference point for games development <laughs> so it's a miracle that I ended up here. and then the other the other example I have is a film called Elle which is like a more art house European film about a, a games producer who gets raped and then has this erotic fascination with her rapist. And yeah, it was an adaptation of a book. And uh, when, I, when I heard that it was being made, I was interested to see how they were gonna present a female games producer. Yeah. And I was really disappointed that she's, they used the, the games product, like they used her career as a, to thematically link her, her kind of obsession with this, this sexual crime. Right. But it's not very clear, it's just, yeah, yeah she, she's working within this very misogynistic um, environment. That's how they present it. Okay. They're making these really horrible, sexual, violent games. Yeah. And then it's meant to be sort of a thematic tie-in with what happens to her earlier on. And to see the games development being used to, as a tool in this way was kind of disappointing. Yeah, that's odd. I've not heard of that yeah. film at all. So do you think that was made like, this is, now we're going off topic. This mm. is the first off topic yeah. <laughs> arm of the, of the podcast. But yeah. do you think the people who made that had a knowledge of the industry? I did a bit of research about it. And the, so the, the book it's adapted from, she's not a producer. She's a, I think she's like a literary agent or something like that. Right. And then they made the change in the film adaptation. Um, they made her a games producer in that. And the justification for that is because it's a more visual medium and it was just easier to film. Oh, right. So there wasn't like, a, they weren't trying to make a real point because that, you know. I don't know. I think, I think. It, <clears throat> we have seen examples of like really hostile, um, um, toxic masculine oh, environments. Yeah. So I thought, oh, is, are they just picking up on that? But it sounds it, like mm. it was just a convenient change to make it work better visually for a film or. I, 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 either way, I felt like it was lazy. And yeah. We need more, like just more interesting depictions of people who work in games. I just found it really disappointing because um, yeah. she's one of my favorite actors, Isabel Huppert, right. is playing this games producer. Right. And when I heard that that was her role before I watched the film, I was like, oh my God, amazing. Imagine watching a woman in her 60s playing a games producer in France. It just seems so, yeah. so yeah. different to what we're used to seeing. Yeah. And it's, yeah. yeah. So um, that and what was the what were you saying? That was called Grandma's Grandma's Boy. boy. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna write that one down. That's absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of. I've, I would quite like to watch it again now. <laughs> I think it would be really interesting. That's one of those references that's just the, the age gap. I'm like, oh, okay, that one passed me by. <laughs> that one went straight past me. Like, it was like a Wayans Brothers type thing, or like. Um, it's. I I don't know what they were called. It's just an American film from yeah. 2004, I would guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I can almost see the cover. Like, yeah, it's. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's a guy on a sofa with a chimp yeah. smoking a bomb. Of course. Um, but yeah, then, you know, that's just developers, let alone yeah. actual gamers. Like yeah. The depiction of gamers is dreadful. Mm. And it's, it's basically become cinematic shorthand if you want a dysfunctional teenager in a film yeah. to have them gaming. Yeah. It tells you everything you need to know about that character. Yeah. And it's, ugh, I'm just so tired of seeing that. Yeah, and obviously we know these things, and it's it's a it's an age old argument, isn't it? But it's like, well, what's the difference between sitting there being engrossed in a TV show for an hour and not doing anything else apart from that? Yeah, because if you say, "Oh, I binge watch um, uh, 
a season of I watched 12 episodes of Friends or whatever. Yeah, people, Everyone's that's like, kind of socially oh, acceptable. Oh, yeah, mate. They'll be like, yeah, what a great Saturday. Yeah, you know? yeah. But I do find it interesting that, well, my big conspiracy theory is that film and TV do constantly depict gamers and games developers in a very negative way. Mm. And I think that could be changed, challenged. Um, I read a really interesting thing, and I'm not sure how true it is, but there's, there is a belief that when games first posed a legitimate threat to Hollywood and, you know, TV shows. It was, a lot of things were commissioned that depicted gamers and developers in a very negative light. Yeah. Because it was like an you know, entertainment threat. Uh-huh. I'm not sure how true that is, but... I think I can see it as a... Maybe not like some kind of weird targeted, uh, like, operation takedown games or anything, mm-hmm. but I think, I think it... Maybe it was more a product of people in charge of commissioning films looking at games going oh god why why do people care about that and like being sneery about it and then the more things they saw that came through that were taking a piss out of that they'd be like oh yeah i like that because i also think games are like that because we're we're the better industry and stuff yeah maybe having a bit of industry rivalry so as a result more more of that stuff gets made because it reflects the beliefs of people commissioning it yeah maybe rather than like this kind of like Okay, code red. They go to a secret meeting room under, you know, under the Earth's equator <laughs> yeah. to like take down games. But like, yeah. but I can see how that that shift is indicative of people's opinions. So here's a question: like going down that route, I think I'm I'm just about now comfortable telling anyone. <laughs> that I play a lot of games just about but still you do what <laughs> yeah yeah but still there's a there's an element of like like there are people like other parents that I get on with and stuff and but you'll mention games and they'll just be like oh no 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 we don't oh we don't do that no 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 yeah no we don't do games they keep we keep away from games and and and, and this sort of coldness fills the air and, oh, and you feel like feeling. you've you know you feel like you've dropped the turkey or something <laughs> So that's the new I've made that, <laughs> that is, that's such a new that's my new uh, <laughs> euphemism you know you just you brought it out oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Euphemism, you dropped the turkey yeah I've dropped like, the turkey many a time well you've ruined it now we're all having a really nice time you've mentioned video games <laughs> and no one knows what to say and no one knows how to move on yeah um, <laughs> but yeah I just wonder what how you feel about talking about games away from game circles or in or in places that aren't exclusively game circles do you feel confident doing that do you feel okay doing that or do you sort of hesitate and and become a bit apologetic for it and stuff oh, like I've that? thought a lot about this um <laughs> over the last two years because before I started the course I inevitably had to tell people that I was going to do this yeah I was making this big career move yes yeah. and I dreaded telling people <laughs> right right because I, I, I truly felt like I was following a passion project but I didn't have enough confidence um to talk about it without mm. being feeling like it was either attention seeking or yeah um you know not very cool and yeah it's like, with hindsight I find that embarrassing thing to admit yeah. that, that I, I even did give a shit in the first place um yeah. but I was particularly nervous about talking to a certain generation of people so parents friends and things like that yeah. I would just watch their faces because I didn't at that point I didn't have um I didn't know what the course was going to be like I didn't know if I'd made the right decision right so yeah. now I can speak with like, a lot of confidence and can really 
enthusiastically say I love what I'm doing. Yeah. And that I've met the most amazing, creative, progressive people from from working in this world. Yeah. Um, but one thing I've, I've become very conscious of was that if I spoke about games to non-games people prior to doing the course, yeah. I would often fall back on using the language of cinema to defend my career choice. <laughs> right. so like, oh, I want to make cinematic games, um, like narrative games. Yeah. I, I want to make, you know, and I can see now that's quite problematic language to use when talking about them because they're an amazing entertainment medium in their own right. Mm. And I was just completely diminishing that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, wanted to, wanted to make gameplay light games mm. as a result. And the more I've learned about, the more games I've played, the more I've learned about design, the more I can see why that, I know it sounds like a very, it's a very insecure way of looking at the medium. Yes. But it's, it's interesting what you're saying about, you know, dropping the turkey amongst a, so, to yeah. a certain social group because I often find that people take a irrationally aggressive um, stance when I, when I say what I do. Yeah. So a couple of times people have, have been very dismissive of it and said like, oh, I don't know why you do that. You know, it's like really misogynistic, really gratuitous, like blah, blah, blah. And whilst that's true in some cases, it's just very, it's very rude. <laughs> and yeah, it, yeah. And it's, it's, it's very small-minded. It's telling you what your job is without knowing yeah. about it. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah, it's just, I get a bit arsy yeah. about it now. But, and so now I, I can go into a bit more confidence. But the other thing I noticed was that a lot of people would immediately say you know i'd say i do game i make games and they'd say what even programming <sighs> and I'm, i would never show them my code but i would very <laughs> confidently say yes even yeah. programming yeah and uh, yeah it's just i think there's a lot of uh, a lot of assumptions that are made about the kind of people who make games and if you challenge that people will doubt your how credible you are in that world <laughs> Just before um, I was taught how to program, I was told by the our tutor, Alan Thorne, he said, um, like, he was basically telling us that learning to program will, learn, will change how you think about the world. Okay. And I remember thinking like, okay, I'm sure that's a bit, <laughs> a bit of an exaggeration. <laughs> yeah. And but, but what I really have learned is that, as you were mentioning with these programmers who do it professionally, you, you, you do learn how to, I'm not sure it's like you learn how to problem solve, but you learn how to get into a headspace that's more, more practical for problem solving yeah so if something bad happens and, and like you're saying if something bad happens with a game you know just one small bug can render it unplayable then yeah if you've if you've learned this skill set where you can sort of take a deep breath go make yeah. a cup of tea or whatever yeah come back and try again and then you just systematically go through every single thing that could go wrong yeah then it's a really amazing skill to have learned and it in that way it really has helped me massively in my day-to-day yeah. outside of games you know if I, I can see that and like when I was talking about having dyslexia one thing I really struggle with is like t uh, times and train times and stuff like that and yeah. instead of just flipping out if I mm. you know feel a bit disorganized mm. just take a step back take a breath yeah you know use these skills that I've learned through programming and I'm not claiming to be an excellent programmer I'm really very rudimentary like my work was very rudimentary in that area but it functioned mm. and I think there's a lot of confidence that grows out of that yeah yeah. And so that's why I'm so grateful for doing that course in the first place instead of just doing a pure design or art course instead. Yeah, especially just sort of doing it from 
oh, well, essentially from scratch as well, and, and, and deep ending it, but coming out knowing how to do it is it must feel really good actually. It's really cool. But um, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Like, I really like that idea of coding, teaching you about problem solving in life, in the sense that in both you can say, right, listen expect problems yeah, yeah. okay <laughs> don't don't be shocked when problems turn up right and, yeah and just if you oh well i knew this was coming well not specifically this problem but i knew problems will were going to turn up at, yeah, some at stage, any point yeah. at any stage yeah so it's not a surprise this is what you do coding and life is kind of problem solving between moments of steady progress yeah, right that's a really nice way of looking at it <laughs> and uh and yeah so you just expect it and and and, and get solving them because they're they're going to happen don't get too uh too in a flap right exactly and if you have once again if you have this creative incentive and you really want to see something work you really want to see the character do an animation at a certain point then you will push through it yeah. and i just i have so many memories of when I was doing my master's, when a friend from a different course would come up to play my game or whatever level area of development it was in. And they'd come in to see what I was doing with like, you know, I'd say, I'll oh, come up at three, mm. you can have a go. Yeah. And they'd come in and I'd say, it's completely broken. There's <laughs> <laughs> I did one thing and the house of cards has yeah. fallen to pieces. Yeah, yeah. I'm really sorry, I can't tell you when it's going to be fixed. And so many people would just be like traumatized leaving the games department thinking yes. like, how can you work in an area, in a, in a world that can just all come crashing down so quickly yeah. equally it can be fixed just it, it can be the most like mundane tiny little change you make that affects mm. everything yeah but the more you encounter these problems the more like resilient you become and the quicker yeah. you can solve it yeah and yeah it's it was really really good learning lesson just getting used to being out of your depth the whole time mm. and learning how to how to yeah persevere So you were saying earlier how your even though you played lots of games, your parents didn't really, almost didn't believe it or didn't really think you were someone who played games. So who did the consoles belong to, would you say? Yeah, that's really interesting. I think often they would be, they belonged to my brothers. So they were bought for them? Yeah, I mean, I think the PlayStation 2 was bought as a as a a group present for me and my two brothers but it's, it, yeah it, it never really felt like my own console yeah and then but it's but as soon as I talked to my parents like when they were like oh you didn't play games you didn't play games I would say well remember the sims or like do you remember like me playing Rodicus tycoon or do you remember yes. me playing like that game with a dolphin you know yeah. and, they, and they'd, they'd have like flashbacks of coming into the living room and seeing me playing these different games and yeah. then they go like oh yeah but it had kind of been they'd had some sort of amnesia about it <laughs> and then just the, the dominant memory was my younger brother just gaming out every day yeah. maybe that's maybe that's that whole thing about what what people see as a game as well yeah like so if it's sims or whatever then it's not but it's not like doom or yeah you know or, or a shooting or an fps or something like that mm. and it's one of those things maybe as well like not a fighting game not yeah a, yeah and like you know i had an um <clears throat> nintendo ds and i think there, there was a 
they put a ban on me speaking into the microphone <laughs> trying to teach my dogs <laughs> tricks They're like they would have give, i'd have a window of time like in the evening where i'd be allowed to go and like yeah. like sit and sit <laughs> <laughs> but in car journeys it wasn't allowed because it was so annoying <laughs> yeah just in the back going sit sit um and so you know it, i can it, see that i can see they've, that they've kind of began to remember yeah but i think it was just something that their their brain hadn't really their brains hadn't really stored <laughs> but um what were you sorry what were you saying just before about the console thing about um Oh, about early gaming memories. Yeah, so I mean, what kind of, what's your, what's the stuff that really, do you remember your first game? Oh, first game. Um, oh, it's probably like. War games. It, probably all the classics like Mario and uh, sure. Pokemon Stadium and stuff like that. Right. But the, the, the single thing that would like tether me to different games when I was a child was if it involved an animal. So I have right. like the most weird selection of games that I was obsessed with when I was younger right. <laughs> like just games which I'd be surprised if anyone had heard of like A Dog's Life oh god no I played it through about 15 times I was completely obsessed with this game where you're a dog <laughs> running around and what I would go into what game was it? It was, it was just like an adventure game where you're a dog in America just <laughs> trying to find another dog <laughs> sorry, sorry. I can't remember the America. complex story arc but it was it, it was so but I think about that game on a weekly basis <laughs> Is that still your thing? I, I would love to play it again if I could get my hands on a copy of it. But I would just play it. Like it was, you know, like the whole idea of it, it. The game wasn't so much a game. It was more a toy where I could, it was like having a, you know, a toy dog, you know, it, that you, yeah. you know, when you're a kid and you play with, I don't know, I'm making this sound very complicated. When you're a child and you have toys. Yeah, yes. And using, a, using a video game as a toy as opposed to a game. Yes. So yeah, I'd yeah, just be like, yeah, oh, yeah. it's fun running around as a dog. It's yeah. fun like swimming around. And I think that was, you know. Less objective based necessarily. Yeah. And even yeah. like Echo the Dolphin, which was a game I was obsessed with. Like the, I don't know if you've ever played the PlayStation 2 on um, oh. Echo the Dolphin Defender of the Future. No, I have it not. It's crazy. Like it's such a complex sci-fi story. It's amazing. Really? And it actually looks pretty cool as well. Like it's really held up. And I, I just quite enjoyed swimming around as a dolphin and yeah. just, yeah, like playing with it as opposed to engaging massively in the that's always the something that's satisfying like you can trace a line between how echo the dolphin felt to play because it's been able to to pop it's out so of the water fun. and down and stuff yeah and like the way people talk about um the web slinging in that and then like a spider-man yeah. game and how they love the feel of that like that that's those two are linked with that by that not with that by that yeah um because that's something that games can uniquely provide. Mm. That kind of, I like the feel of this. And I think that's why Echo was, apart from it being quite an outlier, quite a weird, like, left field thing at the time. Like, saying that, like, a hedgehog. That yeah. Along, but, you know. <laughs> but Echo kind of looked realistic. Yeah, it's like a realistic dolphin and it's like a dolphin sim. <laughs> yeah. But with, like, an alien back backstory or whatever. But, yeah, it, it felt unique. And, and that, that feel of, like... Um, going in the water, you know, there's almost like a resistance to the water, oh, isn't it? Like beautiful. popping up. Yeah. Um, I think that is the one thing that if if you get a kick out of that, I think that's when people really get into games because that's I think I think the term is game feel, which is some people like and some people go. <laughs> yeah, same as Ludo narrative. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it is the best. Maybe maybe there's a new word for it now, but yeah, the feel of it. Yeah, <laughs> is, um, it's just like a pleasure that, to navigate 
yeah and you can't get that from anything else that mm. that sense of weight or just through Carradine which is it is a really special and interesting thing but I think that's why if you love games that's a thing you really like isn't it that kind of sense of like oh, I love how it feels to move this character around or and you can and you can really indulge in a moment that's unique to to games you know that you can if you like a level you can just run around it I did take a, a big break from games, not necessarily consciously, but just during my my undergrad, it just wasn't built into the my social group. Okay, uh, so as a and result, you were like less encouraged. To yeah, it. and like and like I alluded to earlier, because I wasn't confident, as confident as I am now about what I do, mm. I didn't really pursue it in the same way. Yeah, you were you were sort of happy to let it sort of um, yeah. slide a bit. And stuff. Yeah, but would always still had the intention of. If people ask me what I wanted to do, like careers advisors, I would always say I'd like to screenwrite for film, TV or video games. Mm. But yeah, I didn't have my own personal confidence to really pursue that and make a go at it until yeah. I kind of evaluated where my career was going in journalism and copywriting and thought, oh, this isn't what I ever set out to do. Right. And also learned that I'd been quite naive about what was required to enter the games industry. I kind of just thought, oh, if I have an English degree and a couple of excerpts of my writing I could just stroll into a studio and say like oh I'd like to be a narrative designer but yeah. that's just not true yeah. and <laughs> I it was a bit of a bitter pill to swallow when I realized that mm. when I'd applied for a few jobs and realized how unqualified I was right yeah yeah and again it all, it all comes from our perception of what how games are made and, and yeah. how easy or actually how difficult it is to make them and how much is involved and yeah. and the skill of the people involved. And, and if I, and you know, it's the kind of games that I, you know, at that point, the kind of games I would have wanted to work on, ironically, were the ones where I would really require a technical or like at least a design, um, design experience to work on. Like, you know, it, the kind of games where narrative isn't just an afterthought that's slapped on. It, it, yeah. It, I didn't realize it then, but now looking back, I think that if I got a job working as a narrative designer with no design experience, then mm. it, it probably wouldn't have been a studio that valued the, the story part of the gameplay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In the same way. How long since you um, took the your game to EGX then? That was, was that? that was in late September. Late September, right? Yeah. And what was the, what was the game? It's called. Uh, it was a narrative game called Deserter. Okay. Um, where you play the role of a military nurse carrying the unconscious body of a soldier okay. to safety through occupied farmland. Okay. Whilst deserting. Okay, yeah. Sorry, yeah, that's not, yeah. Very, not yeah. very uh, concise. And it it was a, an incredible learning experience because I set out with the intention of making a game that didn't, didn't try and be a film, you know, because it was a narrative game and I had at yeah. this point... I didn't want to make a narrative game that was just aping a film. Yeah. And so I was certain there were several things I really didn't want to include. I really didn't want to use cutscenes or voiceover. I just wanted it to be like a wordless right. gameplay orientated yeah. experience. Mm -hmm. And it was so difficult. Yeah. <laughs> it, it just made me realize why so many games do fall back on cinematic technique. Yeah. Because it's not only is it easier to make, it's easier to consume. Yeah. And when I was playtesting my game, people had no idea what was happening. 
and they yeah. were like, oh, why don't you have some voiceover? What about cutscene here? And I was yeah. like, no, like my <laughs> sensibilities. <laughs> how dare you? Yeah, which, makes, which a, goes to show just how impressive Inside is as a game, that there's no cutscene yes. or word of dialogue or yeah. text. And yeah, like I, it's, it's so difficult to pull that off. Yeah. And it yeah. taught me a lot about being judgmental about cutscenes and voiceover. <laughs> and yeah, I had, to, I had to compromise and put voiceover in, but then still this, I'm not sure the story really got through to people in the same way that it might have without a cutscene. Yes. Um, but yeah, I, I just carried a lot of snobbery uh, going into it. It's difficult, isn't it? It's, a, it's um, I think of um, like one of my favorite games is Bloodborne mm. and they have this mastery of being able to, there are cutscenes, there are bits, but it's quite light and they build, it's the environment art for a start, which is just mind-blowing mm. in its, you know, intricacy. But it's the it's the way they take advantage of what a game is and they always make sure, um, from software, they always make sure that the story they have in there, the world they have in there, all links and makes sense with every element of the gameplay, the physical, the feel of the game and the... And, and the the mechanics in there they always all come together in one absolutely coherent whole games is that much harder to make because of they have to be fun if you want to make a story it has to sort of make sense with what the game is mm. all those things have to come together it has to has to sort of go along at a good pace it has to variety it has to be visually clear it has to feel good it has to <laughs> the sound has to be designed well the yeah, there's just so much more to consider, I think. Um, so yeah, so making a game like without cutscenes to sort of fill the gaps, I guess, to, to almost like little patches, aren't they, just to cover up the Yeah, and cracks. you know, when you only have six months to make a game and you're working <laughs> pretty much by, I mean, I had amazing collaborators and I was helped out a ton by everyone in the department, like sure. all my peers and tutors. Um, but you are the one sat there day after day working on it and if I was if you're working without a permanent team of people yeah then it's just like a very very difficult thing to pull off um and as I've just learned I learned so much from that sure and you know don't get me wrong a lot of my favorite games are very cutscene heavy and would fit under the, the sort of cinematic yeah. bracket but I've just become a lot more yeah just a lot more aware of it and I think one thing I've also become like I'm playing Detroit at the moment and okay. I'm really interested in all the ways it safeguards but the, all the ways it stops the player from like undermining the tone of it yes like you know how you know how you, I mean it's classic David Cage you can't you can only run when you're meant to run you yeah know, you have to walk otherwise you know it's it's beautifully made and that it, it really finds <laughs> it really it's very difficult to make it look bad and when I was making a serious yeah. okay. narrative game it could be undermined based entirely on who played it. Yeah. So if yeah, someone who yeah. doesn't typically play games yeah. would play it and then they were just running in a twitchy way, the whole game would just look like crap. And I was like, yes. no, don't, do that. don't play it like that. So yes. if someone who's good at playing games or experienced, um, what's the word? Like they, they had the dexterity of playing third person adventure games played it. Yeah. Then it, it looked a lot better. But then it, it just made me think a lot about how no, yeah, narrative games are always at the risk of being undermined by the by the player, really. Yeah. I mean, if you think of it like teabagging, for example. Yes. 
as yeah. like a as a sensation. As a sensation. <laughs> no, sensation. <laughs> phenomenon. As a phenomenon. The phenomenon of teabagging. <laughs> <laughs> then that that just goes to show that you know players can disrupt yeah. everything. All the the sort of the mood that you're trying to make from the game. Yeah. It, yeah, it's just always going to be at yeah. risk. Of, they can of, and they will. And yeah, and especially when you're learning how to make a game and it's it's a buggy mess. Yeah. And people can find ways to break it. Yeah. It makes, you know, it's extraordinarily creative when you see all the ways yeah. my game could be broken. I was like, oh, God. It's, it's funny because uh, a lot of gamers resent when control is taken away. And it's almost like a, I think it's almost like a golden rule, don't take control away. Mm. Um, in, all, in all kinds of genres. Like, you know, if, if you're playing, a, as you say, if you're playing like an adventure game, if there's a bit where you suddenly you can't do something because it stops and there's a cutscene and your your controls taken away and your character does the next bit for you. Yeah. It feels like, oh, well I didn't want to do that. Or I might not have done that or or I wanted or just simply I wanted to do that. Yeah. It's very frustrating. <clears throat> um and that that that's the same in like um a competitive game or a fighting game. People get really annoyed like um so in uh, in Call of Duty, for mm. example, is in the in the battle royale mode. There's a there's like a flash grenade that just made you you could you couldn't see anything, you couldn't press anything, and you just moved very slowly. You couldn't do anything back for like eight seconds or something, and and everyone hated that because it's like, well, the controls been taken away from me, um, so they got rid of it. And it's just anywhere where you take control from the player is is generally hated by the players yeah. like things like a really old school thing which you don't see anymore in, in, in a lot of games was where again in loads of different kinds of games you pick up an item that reverses your controls it's like poison it's usually like oh, that's poison. hilarious something yeah. would poison you and what would happen is your controls would reverse oh god and it's horrible there's a whole like I don't know, not era, thankfully I don't think it was that long, but there's a whole trend for a few years. I remember when I was a teenager or whatever, where that was the thing, or yeah. younger maybe. Like, oh, you're poisoned, left is right, right, and, uh, and it's just <laughs> yeah. like the worst thing, and everything. Yeah. and that died again for the same reasons and stuff. Mm. So yeah, like you, you, when you're making a story game like that, I think you, you don't want to, you want to let them do it for themselves, but you also, as you say, don't want, don't, not like that, don't spoil it by yeah. doing that. Um, I remember Metal Gear Solid being quite obviously it's a, that series is kind of weird and silly, but also quite serious as well at times and po faced. And I remember you could make Snake lie on the floor, and if you twirled the left uh, analog stick, he'd just spin really quickly on the floor <laughs> like a like a you know those comedy bow ties. Yeah, <laughs> or a fidget spinner. Yeah, yeah, I think a fidget would just be going like, like that, and it completely undermines the yeah. the moment. But I think you you have to, I mean. In an ideal world, you'd be able to embrace that yeah. as the creator. Yeah. And I think that that was, for me, like quite tough, seeing people not take the material as seriously as they ought to. And yeah. Yeah, and it was a good learning lesson. Because like when I... My brother used to always get annoyed with me when we're playing Mario and I would just make him crawl everywhere. Yeah. I called him Baby Mario <laughs> and I would just make him crawl around. The, that was that was how I would sometimes play the game. Right, okay. Like, you went to jump through the paintings and you went to, you know, yeah. Yeah, you play the game. Oh, yeah. And it was like, that's not that's not how it's intended. So, yeah. Yeah, but that's also the idea of using a game as a toy as opposed to a, a game. Like, where, where does where does that stop and start? Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. And yeah, like the, the mini games that people make within games. Which why the online space, like online multiplayer space, is really fascinating. Yeah, in terms of storytelling and 
and the things that come up that aren't expressly intended by developers yeah like how how people modify the sites to you know how they how they're repurposed for you know something i've heard a lot of people talk about fortnite being more of a social media platform yeah than yeah. It, or being a social media platform alongside being a game yeah and that's really interesting on a totally different tangent was told a story about um like the great pet death of second life when all like whoever was in someone someone made like I don't really feel armed with the right vocabulary to describe what happened here, but because yeah. I, I, I don't really know how Second Life works as an ecosystem. Yeah. But someone made it possible to have pets on Second Life. Right. And then they got bored of maintaining that system, so they just they just stopped it. Right. They, I don't, maybe they died. I don't know what happened to them. But the the implications of that were that the pets and the, the, all the animals in Second Life just stopped whatever they were doing and just never woke up. <laughs> so someone a dog would fall asleep and then that's it <laughs> so there's dead pets everywhere and there was like mass mourning about it it's so sad so weird yeah, as well it's like we were saying just before recording this about um nintendogs yes yeah well and i was talking about nintendogs earlier in this recording <laughs> as well but how the, the kind of moral like it's not even i mean is it real is it not but the, the feel that the feeling i have of guilt that one day i just stopped playing nintendogs yeah there was no right that's it enough nintendogs for me but i just one day it was pretty a bit like that bit in toy story when jesse stops playing with her toys and puts them under the yeah, bed or yeah yeah it's gonna be like that where i just shut my nintendo ds and yeah just gathered dust somewhere and that dog's gone and if i opened it up what what horrors what would you find with it yeah <laughs> dog bones yeah. yeah not the ones they eat the ones they're yeah, made of yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe they ate them too <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh my carnage. god <laughs> this is dog bone <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's a weird and again that just speaks to what a game can do to make you feel involved with it mm, it's that, you know you, you know it's you know it's not real but you know you you, you just you create a connection in, in the same way that you do with a character and something and in a something you're reading or, or a film you're watching but there's that extra element of you being uh, involved in a tactile way oh yeah like personal responsibility is something i think some games utilize amazingly like that bit sorry to harp on about inside again no depending on how you edit this um <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time you've spoken <laughs> yeah. about it but um there's that bit I don't know if this counts as a spoiler, but quite early on in Inside, when you you have to knock down a hay bale and you use a group, you use these little chicks <laughs> yeah. through some farming machine, yeah, and yeah, fires yeah. them up, knocks yes. down a hay bale, yes. and without going too much into the mechanical details of that bit, you you think that you're going to have to kill these chicks, yep. these like little little baby bird chicks, yeah. to to knock down the hay bale and yeah. then to your surprise they're all alive and running around afterwards yeah but then if you stop and investigate that moment you see that one of the chicks is dead yeah and there's no there's no narrative payoff for that and it's very easy to miss it was pointed out to me by a friend when i was doing it all right okay i could have easily just been like oh that was nice like the, yeah. this game isn't all really yeah really dark but yeah just one chick and you feel like a real gut punch because you you know that you you went into that puzzle thinking that you were going to kill them all and you go ahead with it yeah because you, you you need you need to to get to the next part of the game yeah and so when you're like hit with first that relief and then immediately after just terrible guilt yeah that's and they, they didn't have to do that it's really neat and that's a real i can tell why you wanted to make the sort of game you you did based on what you like about inside because that is <clears throat> there's a whole story in that told without 
words just in that one vignette almost, isn't there? Just because you've got, yeah, it's noticing that one dead chick and thinking, oh God, actually that has happened. And and there's, there's a, something really somber about it just being worn as well as opposed to being the whole, all of them almost feel, would feel uh, comical. Especially when you yeah. fire them at the, at the hay bale. Slapstick, isn't it? Yeah. But if then there's just one that's not moving, it, it's the contrast between oh. the ones that are still running around and yeah. the still one, right? Yeah. But that's, again, all told visually without a, without explanation and makes you feel something because of your actual input that you've had to physically do. Yeah. That is, the, that is a real nice kind of isolated... Um, perfect example of using games to do a bit to make a story happen yeah and i mean it's all very linear isn't it because it's it, yeah. it's the only way you can progress through the game yeah but it's that it's it's like that um what they call it um that kind of uh what's it called like the, the, the sort of parlor game um philosophical thing you know when you go like oh there's a train coming and you it, it's either gonna hit it's it's full of people and it's going to fall off a cliff. Right. And you, you can you can either let that happen or you can press a button and redivert the train tracks to hit one person, but the rest of everyone else on the train will be fine. Yeah. Sort of yeah. <laughs> so inarticulate. Speaking English yeah. like a second no, language. I, I, <laughs> but but it's the idea of you have to provide the input. Yeah. And yeah. You have to take the responsibility yeah, for it. Yeah, and that's and even if there's no other way you can complete that game, like, I mean, the other there's, there are two options. You can either press the button and kill the chick, or you can just turn off the game and not play it. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I just think that's like a really like pretty horrifying but interesting way of yeah making a game. Can we talk about what you're working? on at the moment or is that not a thing we can do it's you know i i presume i think safe answer is no but i'm working on a narrative game sure. at the moment cool. uh, as a designer okay and i'm working a lot with cameras and terrain okay which is interesting enough a lot of what i spent doing last year so it felt like a very good fit as a first job right cool cool and how is it how are you finding it how's it going I really really like it it's interesting because it's not a choreographed set of events you know like with a game as we've talked about throughout this conversation yeah. it's all all dependent on what the player does so you're right. having to account for several different ways that a player might move through a level hmm. trying to get the cameras to accommodate that sure and yeah it's just it's like a very interesting way of working because i'm just always trying to break what i'm doing right 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 <laughs> it's yeah. Just like, yeah it's it's the project I worked on before this, I did a, a freelance job where I made a music video with um, 3D animation okay. in the Unity game engine. And that was a choreographed set of events. It was just going to play out the same way each time someone watches it. Yeah. So working with the cameras was quite straightforward. Mm. And now I'm like, okay, so the player is going to potentially go back on themselves. Or like, you know, you've got the, pl you've got the player back in the, yeah. in the, um, the, the design choices you make. Yes, yeah. And going back in, like backing against walls or backing against oh scenery God. and turning yeah. and putting it as underneath as much as yeah. they can or at yeah. the top or like, yeah. Just. Exactly. And that was when I was, the game I took to EGX was the same that, you know, some people will play it very gracefully and they'll know how to use the cameras and some people will, and this is, it's entirely my own shortcomings for that to be the case. Like it's, games sh should look, games should be able to accommodate 
novice yeah. players. Yeah. But that's a very difficult thing to pull off. Mm. So it's really great to be learning about that now. So you're sort of in a place again where you're in the deep end again, finding out new things as you go and just, uh, yeah, just, yeah, as you say, it's something you say you've got to get used to if you're coding or if you're designing games. It's just being totally out of your depth and going, well, let's work it out. and Yeah, and being comfortable, in it? And being comfortable. Do you think that's always going to be the case? Do you think as you're going forward, the next thing you do, the next thing you do, you're just going to keep, just, I guess you're just learning new things, right? But Yeah, and I, I'm... Because I'm I'm happy to be in that in that position. Yeah. Because I mean, there's because I experienced what it was like to work as a journalist and a copywriter, which are two things which obviously have their own challenges. But I wa I I wanted to go into games design to learn new things. Yeah. And I felt beforehand that I wasn't being challenged in the way that I wanted to be. Sure. And I'm so grateful to be working in this industry. Yeah. Because I I really thought I'd miss that boat. Right. So I'm yeah, I'm 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 happy to be completely out of my depth for now. <laughs> and and I yeah, you know, there's like a lot of platitudes that are cropping up in my mind now like the idea of nothing grows in a comfort zone, hmm. that kind of thing. And it's just it's a at the end of the day it's a, it's an industry that's advancing incredibly fast and unpredictably. Yeah. And I think that if I were to be working in a space that I felt was you know that I felt completely at ease with yeah it would probably mean that I was in something a bit stale I know that if I'm feeling a bit out of depth that it's a good sign yeah because I'll be in the cutting edge part of the industry yes, yes. um that being said the the job I'm currently in is the best of both worlds because it's I'm learning a lot but everyone's incredibly accepting and understanding of not understanding <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah 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 and I feel like maybe that's a common empathy that game developers have. Yeah. Every, you know, it's all pretty confusing and everyone else's work looks really difficult. And I've been yeah. really, really yeah. Um, comforted by how, yeah, accepting people are of, of when you don't understand something. So what would be your ideal in terms of what you want to make in the future? Because mm. I'm getting a good idea of the sort of games that interest you and the sort of things you want to make. So I think I know what the answer is to a point, but what <laughs> what do you, however long it that takes, like when you make the game, we're like, right, this is my game, we're doing this. Yeah. What do you want to do? Where do you want to take that in the future? Like what what will that game, what would that game look like? Or saying that, what else do you want to do in the industry rather than just make a particular game? Like I'm interested in the audience of people who don't play games. So the people who've never thought the games were for them. And I can understand there's a there's a financial reason why they're not really pursued as an audience by the games industry because what's the point? There's already a, a big body of people who do play games, but I'm I'm I just know so many people who don't play games who would love them, and it, it kind of frustrates me. Um, but ultimately, I, I want to be making games that utilise the medium in its own right, and they're not just trying to ape films. <laughs> <laughs>